You're listening to another sermon podcast presented by Chelsea Presbyterian Church. Located in Chelsea, Alabama, we value community, fellowship, and love for people from all walks of life. For more information, find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook. All right, we're in the book of John. So far in our series, uh, we're in John 4, 7 through 26 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 4. If you do not, always for your convenience, we have it printed in the order of worship. So far in the book of John, Jesus has been showing up to parties, providing wine, whipping and throwing people out of the temple in Jerusalem, and causing quite a stir in the wilderness when he tells all the religious folks they had gotten it all wrong and they need to repent like everybody else. And today, we're seeing another controversial situation, a controversial move, maybe it's most controversial move yet. So let's look at our passage for today. Uh, just for the purposes of the introduction, we're just gonna read the first two sections here today and then we'll cover the rest in a bit. Look at verse seven. So the woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By God, help us to understand this passage. Help us to understand your heart. Help us to understand your love for the people that you had around you. Whether it was Nicodemus last week as a, as a religious leader or uh, uh, someone who was an outcast like this Samaritan woman. Lord, you taught us and gave us the understanding that you are here to embrace the, the world and we need to follow after that. We thank you for your love. Show us more about that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have been a chaser most of my life, and this is what I mean by that. I grew up in the cotton fields of Arkansas, but I always felt out of place. And I remember being in one of the work trucks one day, looking out over the horizon and thinking, man, there's gotta be something better than this. Uh, there's gotta be more to life than this. And my life always felt like it was never settled. I almost had a fear of being settled over my lifetime. I, I always had this fear like I was missing out on something, like stuff going on in the big city or, or stuff going on in another, another part of the country. And this is one of the reasons that I actually started the church here. See, that desire can be good. God uses that urge sometimes to go from, to, to the next thing. 
Uh, but it can also, if it's out of balance, so deep-rooted seeds of discontentment in your life. Now, and really, up until this life, point in my life, uh, for me, contentment kind of felt like I was settling, like I was just kind of surrendering to the, the, the circumstances around me. Uh, and I always wanted more. I wanted the next project, the next adventure, more money. I wanted a, another new, different experience. I wanted a new identity at times. And then I thought I would be happy. And I was for a time sometimes. And then I would settle down and it would start over again. This is one of the reasons I think I can relate to the woman at the well so much. Because it's not what you think. And I believe this is also why God would, would basically invest an entire chapter in John over a conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. It talks about the idea here of coming to a place in your life, a space in your life, where you're not moving from thing to thing to thing to thing. The idea that you can come to a place at your life at some point and be fulfilled, not just once, but over and over and over again. And to a person, obviously Jesus, that's calling us to a place that will never thirst again. What I know at, at this point in my life, at the age of where I'm about to turn 50, is there's no earthly longing, no amount of chasing or looking for the next best thing. There's no perfect diet. There's no fairy tale relationship. There's no getting to your goal weight. There's no making a certain amount of money that will ever, ever truly satisfy us deep in our souls. Now, I've heard sermons preached on this passage today, and I think almost 90% of them are wrong about what God is showing us and what's actually happening here in the sermon. And let me explain today by way of four points. I know I'm a heretic right now. I'm using four points. I always use three. I know the gold standard is three. I'm doing four today. By the way, it doesn't mean it's longer than the three-point sermons, okay? So you can kind of, okay, thank you. So let's look at uh, these four points, and they're in the sermon outline today. We're going to look at an ordinary setting, uh, a strange confrontation, a deeper question, and then the final setting. So let's talk about these today. Let's look at just this ordinary setting in some way. And that is... Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Okay? What's the big deal? Then Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And it says in parentheses, right? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, if you're not familiar with this uh, tension here, this passage needs a little backstory. Years and years before, the nation of Assyria had taken the people of Israel captive. God had kept telling them, if you don't turn, repent. I'm going to allow you to be taken captive. And they were taken captive. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. Not every citizen was taken, though. Many of the people that remained married people from Assyria. So you got to think about it. They're marrying the people that took their people captive and resettled the area. And so they, they basically stay in their homeland where all these Jews are taken away. And because of this, there's all these new ethnic identities that emerged there. And between that time and the passage, the Jewish authorities were trying to get rid of, as we lead up to this passage, between the time that they were held captive, they got to come back home, until now. The Jewish people were trying to get rid of every foreign influence 
upon the Jewish nation and caused all these ethnic groups that had happened to all have to flee to Samaria and be isolated in one place, away from Judea, away from Galilee and all these places. The majority of Jews were essentially racist against the Samaritan society because of its ethnic descent, but also because of its religious practices. See, many of them thought that the, the Samaritans were like renegades or nonconformists at best, and at worst, they called them half-breeds, mixed bloods. If you've seen Harry Potter at all, you can think in terms of the muggles or the blood bloods, however you want to do it. Uh, but So the Samaritans, not only that, worshipped at Mount Gerizim, and then Jews were worshiping at Mount Zion. So they were kind of in competition, not just ethnically, but now you have a religious problem here. The racism was so bad that the Jews, when they had to go from Judea to Galilee, would go all the way around just so they would not have to walk through Samaria in this unclean territory. And they would take the long way, the long detour around this unclean region. So when the Bible says this woman is a Samaritan, it brings a, a lot of meaning and a lot of baggage. And understanding that in that culture, this woman was basically outcast. We also know from the time, the customs of the time, that typically women would come out from the village and they would all jo uh, join together and draw water in groups in the morning before it got hot. And it was kind of a social event, probably uh, just comparing what's been going on in the village, maybe a little gossip going on. Uh, but this is kind of their bonding time uh, at, at, in, outside their village. And so the fact that she was drawing water alone in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, indicates that in some way she was an outcast, not just among the Jews, but among her own people. She's never named in this book. But yet her encounter with Jesus is one of the longest ones between Jesus the Messiah talking to someone, an individual in the Gospel of John. She represented the lowest of the low as far as the people, what they thought around her. A female in a society where women were both demeaned and disregarded. A race traditionally despised by the Jews and living in shame, and we're going to see why in a moment, living in shame as a social outcast even from her own people. See, the Samaritan woman found herself drinking at the well with the Savior of the world. That he came there, and it's no accident, right? Samaritan was this desert town. The heat of the day was not the time to be filling up jars, but she did. See, she had, at this point in her life, planned her entire day, and probably her life, around hiding and escaping the pain of her shame. To avoid running into other people in the village, and as we said, drawing water alone in the heat of the day could only indicate one thing, that she was a social outcast. But yet Jesus found her there. He pursued her there. Like I said, I found so many similarities to the story. There's so many ways I can relate to the Samaritan woman that just feels like she did not add up. She was lost in a sea of her own brokenness, most likely living the assumption that there was no fix for her, there never would be that there was no future for her. She was too far gone. She had no, no future at all, no hope. She was just in survival mode, just going and getting the basic needs of water. Rather than confronting her reality, 
Rather than interacting with people, she had planned her life in such a way that she was going to stay away, so she was sacrificing happiness for safety and isolation, so she didn't have to deal with any of this. Yet there was Jesus, sitting at the well, asking her for a drink. Think about it. The Savior of the world asked an outcast to help him. Here's what he's telling her. You have something of value to me that I need, and I'm willing to admit that. Not only that, she is something of value, is what he's trying to say. And she is so overwhelmed by Jesus dignifying her that she's like, how can this be? See, this reminds us in the beginning of Jesus' love for the world. The fact that he was at the well was, uh, was someone of such a low standing in, in everybody else's eyes by way of gender, race, and marital status. And we'll see this in a minute. And they talked so directly, like she was his peer dignifying her in a conversation like he would have with one of his disciples, saying, you're equal, partner, and you have dignity as a human being. And it shows Jesus' heart for all people, not just so. So let's look at point number two. Look at verse 10. Jesus said this. It's a strange confrontation. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. Basically, he dug this well. And he drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water, this water again will be thirsty. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. The water that I give them will become a spring of life, welling up into eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water, right? Not only that I'm not thirsty anymore, I want this, but I don't want to come back to this tank well by myself every day. It's funny, in this um, part here, the Samaritan woman points out, out of everything she could have pointed out, she's like, you don't even have a cup. You, you, know, you don't even have a bucket. So you're talking about this idea of living water, as if you're greater than Jacob. You're like, you don't have a cup, you don't have a bucket. What, you got your own well, you know, back here somewhere in your back pocket? And uh, now the text doesn't say if her tone was sarcastic or rhetorical or fully sincere, but many scholars think she's being facetious to a degree at this time. After all, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, Isaac, a son of Isaac, the traditional ancestor of the people of Israel, who likely founded the town in addition to providing that well. She was at Jacob's ancient well, which brought a lot of history around it. And in the Bible, Jacob's notoriety is great. But Jesus clearly, earnest answer, elaborating on this living water he can provide, prompted her to ask for it. And we know at this point, we're just like her, right? We're all thirsty people. We have these longings in our soul. Some call it anxiety or lack of fulfillment. But what if, think about this today, what if the longings that we have in a deep way had a purpose for good and not for harm? What if, what if God actually put those there himself? What's, that's the purpose of the living well, to be home and come to be filled. And we all try to do it all our time on our own. we got these deep longings, and we try to fill them on our own all the time. In the words of McJagger, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction, right? I try, and I try. And I try, and I try, right? There's a reason why he says it four times. You just can't get there. 
So let's keep going. Point three. There's a deeper question here. This is fascinating. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying that I have no husband. Matter of fact, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. When she says you say, she's saying as a Jew, this is what you acknowledge. So she has three strikes against her in this culture now, right? A woman, a Samaritan, and basically an adulteress in the eyes of everybody. That's when Jesus shifts to the second part, the next phase of this dialogue, which reveals that he not only had what he needed, but he knew things about her that were both surprising and secret and telling about the things that she struggled with, that she had been married five times and was not even married to her current man. Now, we don't know this. Whether she found her identity in men, she had some kind of need for approval or to be loved or for security that she couldn't find, so she moved her from man to man, man, or maybe just men used her. And it's probably both. It's probably both. But what we do know that Jesus doesn't camp out on this but he's, this is what led to deeper questions for her that's what's far more important in the story. If you're stuck on the idea that Jesus points out her sin instead of all this other stuff, you're missing a point. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now she infers that Jesus is a prophet. He's like, nobody can know these things about me. And then she, so she begins to shift the gear to want to speak about religious matters, specifically noting that Jews say the place to worship is Jerusalem. But her people worship in a different place. Contrary to what many believe, I don't think, and I think this is where so many sermons get it wrong, I don't think she's deflecting from the question about her husband. I don't think that at all. I think you're wrong because it doesn't make sense with the entire conversation. Contrary to what they believe, I, think, I don't think she's trying to trick or deflect or to stump Jesus. I think, and this is the idea I think makes sense of the entire conversation, I think that when Jesus met her at first engagement, and he dignified her as a human being. He had her at that point. And then she became intrigued. Now she has deeper questions. See, this is how Jesus had religious conversations. This is how we should have religious conversations. We need to learn from this. First of all, he just treated her like a human being. For all the evangelism programs and all the things that people have about things you can talk to and knock on people's door and invite them to church and all that, for all of that, I'm saying, people come to me like, how do I talk to people about the church and about Jesus and like that? Like, First, just treat them like a human being. He dignified her in a world where she had no dignity and they saw her as an outcast. He met her where she was. He never condemned her, but he loved her and he guided her through the process. And then, guess what? Out of an overflow of all those things, the Holy Spirit did its work, and the rest took care of itself. But let's like look at the fourth point here, the final say. Jesus said to her, woman, this is verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming. And now it is where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people 
to worship him. People that worship in spirit and truth. Not in a location. Spirit and truth. See, God is spirit. That's why. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Great ending, right? But it doesn't end there. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's look at a few points here. First, most obvious, Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman shows us that our deepest need is not for physical appetites and things that we think it is. You know, it wasn't about water at any point with her. But it's the, the things that we need to satisfy our spiritual thirst, the things that our souls long for, that only Jesus can provide in terms of what he calls life-giving water. Next, the good news of Jesus doesn't, it's not out to change your behavior or make you just a little bit better. The good news of Jesus and an encounter with Jesus radically changes our lives. See, after this is what's happened. If you don't know the rest of the story, it's just as important or more important than all the other things that we've seen here today. The Samaritan woman goes back to her village. Ready for this? She shares her experience with Jesus with her people. And people are converted because of what she's saying there about Jesus. And they begin to follow Jesus. See, here we have a, a lady in the desert alone who has lost her voice. And now she finds her voice. Here's a lady that had lost her dignity and her identity. And now she has one. She's revered in the village. What she says, the people see is true. She, that Jesus uses her in a powerful way at this point. Once again, in Jesus. What is lost is always restored. Not only that, but this. Think about it this way. If you haven't figured it out by now, we, all of us in the room, are the Samaritan woman at the well. We are hungry and we are thirsty for real life. Even when we think, act like we got it all together and pretend like we're not. We want abundant life. We want a true identity. We want life that really matters. If you're here today and you think that you're better and this Samaritan woman right here in any way, then you are missing the entire point of the story. And you will never get the good news that Jesus is preaching. Here's the last part. This also reveals how Jesus can relate to us in a deep way. See, Jesus knows how it feels because he was rejected by his own people. He was put to death by his own people. The story of the woman at the well is a rich example of the love and the truth and the redemption and acceptance that Jesus has. And not only does Jesus accept us, but he accepts us too in all our messed up brokenness. We don't have to hide from these things. We don't have to run from these things. We don't have to pretend like they're not there. We, don't, we, we, we can bring them and, and expose ourselves. And Jesus will embrace us like there's no tomorrow. If only we too believe. The book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, that concludes the entire story of the Bible and life as we know it ends like this. Jesus says this at the very end. Last part of the whole kid caboodle. He says this. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. A lot of us know that part. But you ever notice this part? He says this. I will give unto him that is thirsty for the fountain of the water of life freely. So the question is, what are your deepest needs and longings today? What do, you, what do you think is going to make you happy? 
and do you and, and give you satisfaction and life of meaning? You think it's a person? You think it's all the things we mentioned before? Uh, you think it's something that uh, around you? Anything outside of that is going to fail you besides Jesus. All these things that we have that we desire and long for, status, money, all these things, are just echoes of the deepest, darkest, deepest desires of your heart and your soul. And Jesus knows there, and God put those there. There's a vacuum in your heart, and God put it there that only He can fill. And He has the answer. Do your soul need oxygen today? Are you thirsty for true life? Are you hungry for more? Come to Him at this table today and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father God, um, there's so many things uh, in this passage that, that uh, just reminds us how human we are, how broken we are, how needy we are. And yet, we don't want to admit that. We try to cover it up. We just try to try harder sometimes. Uh, sometimes we just want to run and hide and isolate like the woman at the well did. And just not think about it. Or just be stoic and pretend like it's not there. Lord, those are horrible and miserable ways to live. Would you show us this, this, that, that, this morning? Would you see your Holy Spirit convict us of those things that, 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 that we have longings of that maybe we don't even know what they are. But maybe we don't even know what we want. But we do know this. Jesus is the answer to that too. Would you bring us to your table today? Bring us to your well and your living, life-giving water. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. We want to remind our listeners that our doors are always open at Chelsea Presbyterian Church, and we invite all our listeners to join us for worship. You can visit us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Chelsea Middle School. To hear more of our sermons from our church or for more information, you can find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook.